this Daza pod, we got some Q&As. But first, a little bit of news and a little bit of updates. It is now time for Hackerman, my friends. That's what we're doing. Um, Hackerman, by the time this airs, should be available to you guys. If not, I've probably started the promotion marketing cycle, and he will be in the store very shortly. You're going to have two options. You can purchase the Action Figure of the Month version of the character, which is a material-style figure, as is customary with Action Figure of the Month Club. We typically debut a new character in material style. And you can also get, in shorter supply, the Meat Ambassador. The Meat Ambassador, of course, was the subsidy supply drop pre-order version of Hackerman. Um, instead of doing these sort of marble-flaked, uh, opaque plastic... I have instead opted for a very cool, clear, blood red with glitter. I think you're really going to love it. It looks fantastic. So those are your two Hackerman options. Um, as I have posted, there are certain combinations that require two Hackerman figures. So this is a figure you may want to double up on. We have the sort of gigante size. We have the pequeño size. There's a lot of cool interplay with the limbs that you can do that I think is unexpected and adds another dimension to this character. So if you're ever going to sort of buy duplicates, he's probably a really great candidate. Um, I do want to thank everybody that sort of participated in the fundraising for Action Figure of the Month last year. Hackerman was brought to life due to the enormous uh, sort of uh, outpouring of support for the character. He is, as of now, the best action figure I've ever designed. His interplay with Radic is in, is particularly crucial. Um, I just, I love this figure. I can't wait to get more painted styles of him. Can't wait to get him in your hands. And in holding Hackerman, I, I start to realize and I get the urge to complete the, the squad of Thick Boys. I, I think... We need to take another look at Sen 5 and a Chromega. And in fact, I have some work being done on both of them right now. I've taken your feedback into consideration. I think you're going to be very surprised with some of the changes and additions to those two characters. And I think what we need to do collectively as a group next is try to complete the quadrilogy of these, uh, these beefy men. It's, uh, it's going to become super important. You'll see. So uh, stand by for that. Uh, in other news, this Toy Life, at this Toy Life on Instagram, Bobby Torres, his store is now open for appointments only. This is in my home state of Connecticut. Really wonderful, fantastic store he's put together. It is, it's truly like what we've always talked about as kids. Bobby, myself, and uh, Josh Garrow, we all grew up together childhood friends, probably the only three people that still collected action figures and read comics and stuff like that. So this is a, a long time coming. It's a dream come true. Uh, obviously, masks and gloves are required. He's got hand sanitizer. It should be a relatively low-risk um, venture for you. But I uh, highly recommend you go there. There is a dedicated Night of the Slice area of the store, and he has quite a few sold-out styles. So if you missed out on a couple sales and you're in the tri-state area, maybe you've earned yourself a little bit of a road trip. Just please use, use caution, be safe, uh, masks and gloves, and um, you know, don't cough directly into Bobby's mouth. That would be very rude. You know, for the fact that we talk just about every week via questions and answers, you guys really don't disappoint. Um, I would have thought you'd be sick of of this back and forth, but every week you guys really come up with some very crucial and interesting questions, and I thank you for that. Um, I'm going to go to Patreon questions first, of course, because they are a protected class as far as I'm concerned. Starting off with the great Matthew Paquette, who I actually believe might be making the Mecca to this toy life at some point in the near future. I wish you luck on your pilgrimage, my friend. He says, Can Hyperdeath actually die, or is he reborn every time his body is destroyed? Meaning that his death 
and the chameleon lime story is only temporary. And Sam says, going off of this, are lime and death tied to fate to always hold a rivalry? Now, what <laughs> what's happening with these two questions here is organic creation, right? These are things I have not consciously thought of yet, but I think you guys are both getting to a very specific truth of the sort of world building and the storytelling. Uh, this is what I, I love doing, right? When I think of myself at my most happiest in my so, sort of most actualized, elevated form, it is during the creation process. And I think that these two questions are really indicative of the malleability of the Knights of the Slice world, right? The fact that um, things take on a meaning after they're digested and processed by you guys. Um, so I think that these are both sort of valid and completely truthful questions and statements. Um, I can say that consciously I have not thought about either of those things, but they, they strike me as being very true. So I, I sort of want to leave it at that and see where this story progresses. But I will give one sort of, I will add another nugget to this. Um, it had never occurred to me that hyperdeath is actually the Trilobite Kingdom world's version of Death Knight, although they share the same name. I had actually designated somebody else as the hyper, as the sort of Trilobite Kingdom world version of our world's death night. I know this is very convoluted and confusing. Um, so part of that will sort of develop uh, within the next couple of releases. You're going to get some, some, some sort of story tidbits. Um, the other thing... This is an interesting note. You guys may want to add this to the wiki. Uh, I have decided that uh, we have sort of earthlings and humans, and this is our world, quote-unquote. And then we have the Trilobite Kingdom, this sort of alternate world. Uh, the people there are called hyperkind. So hypernites are hyperkind. And they're generally sort of augmented humans that utilize cybernetics and technology to sort of, you know, expand their their lifelines to minimize their need for food or rest, etc., etc. So we have Earthlings and Humankind, and then we have Hyperkind. You're also going to learn the name of the planet they come from. That's in an upcoming story. I'm not going to give that away right now. Philip Barrara, do you have any toys that comfort you during the times of stress? Uh, for me, recently, I got my wisdom teeth pulled, including the bottom ones, so the Combat Bugman was a great figure to get me through that first agonizing week. Um, I've had my wisdom teeth removed as well. Not fun. However, I had this very odd, miraculous healing that occurred. I must be a mage. Uh, within... A day, I was eating solid food again. I was up. I was fine. I had tacos. <laughs> um, very bizarre, sort of. I, I don't know what was going on, but I just I bounced back from it right away. And uh, you know, I didn't have one of those horror stories about impacted sockets or shit like that. Went went fine. But still, not a fun thing that has to happen. Um, I would say, in terms of comfort, I've actually come on to a new sort of soothing process, and I'm going to share it with you guys, and it is specifically pre-9-11 blockbuster films, usually summer movies. Um, I'm talking about Mission Impossible 2, fantastic movie, still holds up, pretty corny and funny, but wow, what a, what a, what a thrill ride, love that film. Uh, I'm talking about Independence Day, ID4. Um, talking about last night we watched Stargate, which is still fantastic. What a great, great film. Um, things sort of took a, a dark turn for all of human nature, really, after 2001, after 9-11. Um, and you see it in the films that happened after that. There, the, a cynical nature really started to develop a very jingoistic, um, 
not just pro-military, but sort of pro-American might is right-ism really started to uh, permeate all culture. And it, it's, it, it has it led us down a dark path, obviously. But if you go and watch these films pre-9-11, and, and you know, The Matrix is another great example. That was, what, 1999? Um, there was, there was a pinnacle achieved in these big entertaining blockbusters, um, maybe not the best scripts in the world, maybe not the best dialogue in the world, but really a, a, an era of filmmaking that is so fantastic to watch and truly gives you escapism in a way that other films after that event really do not because they are sort of they're twisted in a way as we all became you know it's sort of unavoidable it's a a psychic scar uh, on all of humankind Um, so I highly recommend that and actually I'm trying to get together with the Toy Boys for another podcast hopefully on Saturday and our topic is going to be the toy lines for these summer blockbusters and our memories and, and which, which ones we went after, which ones we, we you know, uh, bit the hook on. Um, so stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, I don't have any specific toys I'm gravitating towards, but I do find that watching these mindless, fun movies before the end of humanity sort of started to uh, close in on us is a really good escape. Joe asks, any interest in the Mezco 5-point line? They look really good. Um, Phil Barrara adds in that Mezco ought to tackle Shovel Knight and Steven Universe, both having lots of toy potential and loyal fan bases, which 5-points would be financially safe safe way to test the market. Um, I think that... uh, I I like Philip's idea. I think that Mezco tend to gravitate towards IP that's older than that. Um, Mez is a few years older than me, and I know that, you know, his interests lie in the stuff he grew up in. And Mezco, I I don't think really have experimented too much with more contemporary IP. Um, maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing, I'm not sure. But to answer Joe's question, yes, I'm interested. Uh, I probably should pick up the Space Ghost figure. Uh, I like what they're doing, I like this sort of... Max Fleischer, Superman. Um, yeah, I'm going to check these out for sure. I just haven't... Uh, I'm actually trying to not use Amazon at all. Uh, I would encourage everyone to consider that as well. Um, I don't think why needs very much explanation. Um, so I'm, I'm really trying to... Uh, I'm not buying much at all. Really just focusing on sort of secondhand stuff I, I find on eBay. But... Um, yeah, I, I definitely want to pick up one, and uh, I will do so soon and let you know what I think. Supersaurus Rex asks... Oh, by the way, Supersaurus Rex, could you possibly change your name on Patreon to be your uh, Christian name? <laughs> I It is hard for me to fulfill gifts when people use aliases. It takes me a little bit longer, so if you would swap that over, it would be super helpful in terms of me getting you more toys. Thank you. Uh, moving on to the question, any thoughts about using color change plastic that works via heat slash cold? I had the NECA color change T1000. It's a lot of fun. The idea of combining that with interchangeable parts sounds like it could be a lot of fun, and I agree with you, it could. And I have that same figure. It is really fantastic. One of the best heat-based color changes I've ever seen. Um, I made this specific choice to not utilize hot and cold, but rather UV. Uh for a, a couple different reasons, but basically I, I felt like I could achieve a better color differentiation with UV as opposed to heat. Um, also, hot and cold is something that affects the the way the joints sort of go together on Glyos figures. You know, obviously you heat the figures to get them to stay together. so. I wasn't so thrilled about the idea of people heating their figures to achieve a color and then trying to play with that figure and it falling apart because 
you know, the cohesion has been manipulated by the heat. Um, I, I think eventually I will get to doing those. I think also NECA's T-1000 is a great example of that effect working really well. Usually it is harder to get such a great dynamic color. If you look at the uh, recent Aquaman movie figures, they had a little color change that was affected by heat. Um, it's a terrible effect. It barely works. It's barely noticeable. So it's much harder to achieve a, a nice differentiation with the temperature-based pigments as opposed to the UV-based pigments. Um, so that was part of my decision as well. Um, I probably will do it at some point. It is, it's an effect I really love. So uh, I don't think it'll happen this year, but it is something in my back pocket I'd like to get to. Lee Mullick. By the way, Lee, I do have an outgoing parcel for you. I have not forgotten about you. It is sitting in the outbox. I will get it to you, I promise. Will we see more glow-in-the-dark figures to keep Radic company? Um, yes. Uh, I don't want to say too much, but not, not a ton and not in the near future. And I would also say glow-in-the-dark I like, but it is a gimmicky plastic. So I tend to prefer to get fully painted iterations of a character out to sort of fuel the narrative of things and glow in the dark is usually something I do on the third iteration of the character there have been some exceptions of course Radic was sort of perfect for glow in the dark it was definitely necessary um, and I knew that I, I wasn't going to be able to do painted styles of him for several months so that worked out pretty great um, but yeah I, I think over a long enough time period, I will have glow-in-the-dark of every figure. It's just never the top of my list. I usually have very narrative-specific colorways I need to get done, and those tend to be the more exciting ones for me. Gordon McKinnon-Hall says, I enjoyed the pictures and art you shared of the Jurassic Park Jeep you got recently. I know you've mentioned you might do a formal best vehicle list to Stazapod, but what are your current top five vehicles? Uh, yeah, Gordon, I gotta save it for that, the Stazapod, because I, I really do want to do it, and I uh, I don't want to sort of tip my hand to what my top five vehicles are. They're probably not that difficult to guess, at least some of them anyway. Um, the Jurassic Park Jeep, I will say this much, a fantastic looking toy, not the most, like, I don't know, it feels very light and kind of cheap. I think an actually, a, a better version of this idea is actually the Johnny Quest Jeep, which borrows heavily from the Jurassic Park one and is three and three quarter inch scale. Uh, and it just kind of, it's sturdier, it's heavier, it's a little more, it just has more playability. Um... I think that the Johnny Quest one, which is ripping off the idea of the Jurassic Park Explorer, is actually a superior toy. Lance Tomatillo asks, Sepentor or Cobra Commander? Sepentor every time. Uh, that is a, a fantastic figure that still holds up to this day. I think it's a, a brilliant character design. I love the, the backstory behind him. I love the... Uh, comic three-pack versions of Sepentor that were released later on that recolored the figure. Uh, now I gotta go find my Sepentors. I, I I fucking love that character, man. So great that the air chariot, the sort of gold uh, luminescent plastic that it's cast in, his sword, his cape. He's got it all. No contest. It is Sepentor, hands down. Lance also asked if I were Skeletor. Who would I trust the most to accomplish mission in what order of their trustworthiness? Triclops, Beastman, Merman, or Trapjaw? I mean, they're all incompetent, right? I think that was the the defining theme of all the Skeletor henchmen. They all kind of suck. I would probably outsource it to Scareglow and maybe Ninjor. Is that his name? Because I don't recall them being quite so dumb. And maybe Blade. Blades? from the He-Man movie? What's his name? Yeah, I'd go with those guys. 
Gavin Rader. So we've been told that Hackerman is the is the foe of Raddick, but who's to say that isn't just propaganda from those that would choose to quiet Hackerman and their and his agenda? I mean, is he bad in the truest sense of the phrase, bad guy? Do Hackerman aim to control the vector? Are they uh, fascistic in their desire to control? Is Racker, is Raddick a freedom fighter for a free state of being where? time, age, race, gender, etc. are malleable, are all hackermen equal in their goals and allegiances? So these are fantastic questions that I'm not going to answer. But I will say there is going to be a character in the next couple months that are, is going to question all of these queries, right? The, all of these thoughts that you have are going to be put into motion with an upcoming character. And it, re- it will really be a litmus test. People will get this figure and they're going to have strong reactions to it, either in favor or, you know, in disgust. And it's going to be a very interesting thought experiment because it, it's a very loaded concept and it's going to evoke strong emotions. And it will be interesting to see who lands with who. And you will be asking precisely these questions about that figure. Sam is looking forward to doing Hedorah's long-lost cousin Deathla using the Meat Ambassador, and I welcome you to do this Kit Bash custom. I think that's great. He wants to know if Device Ninjas will have anything to do with Turbo Atoll. Uh, he's been listening to Death Grips, and one of their songs give me gives him the mental image of the ninjas compromising the race. Sam, that is eerie. Uh, you have psychically tapped into something that may or may not happen in Turbo Atoll. Um, Device Ninjas will be in Turbo Atoll. They play a huge role in it. And arguably, this is actually the first time that the Device Ninjas are actually doing anything in the greater story of Knights of the Slice. It's been a character that I haven't fully developed until now. And they are pivotal to what's going on. And that may mean we get new device ninjas in the near future. But I'm excited. I think actually, um, you know, obviously every Stazapod I sort of go back and forth. I don't know what to do in terms of getting Turbo Atoll out there. I definitely want the entirety of the story to wait for print. I think that's important. But I may figure out a way to have the sort of prologue and maybe the first piece of action... uh, put out in maybe digital uh, as part of a bundle of new figures and stuff like that. So I'm thinking about it and we will, uh, we'll see what happens. James Davis says, I think you've mentioned before that you like to do animal heads at some point. Maybe if you do, what animals would we likely see initially? Do you already have a story concept in mind for them or would you think of something after they were made? Um, So Those who know, like, my old-school artwork from childhood know Bomber Bunny was a character of mine. There's actually been some great fan art of Bomber Bunny over the years. So I think he's top of my list. I just think, like, a combat-ready white bunny is an awesome character and a lot of fun. So he's right up there. Um, One of the uh, earliest drawings, or more contemporary drawings, I guess, of Raddick actually has him in shark mode um so a a shark head is short on my list i need to do a dinosaur head i have a old hero character called prototops um and you know he's just sort of a cool uh dinosaur i wanted to do that to that forever Uh, so you know those are some of the ones that are floating around I, i don't know when i'll get to that but um it is on my short list. I think that would be really a lot of fun. I like anthropomorphic sort of animals. I think it opens up a new dimension. A lot of my early stories were about characters like that. So it, it would be, I think, really cool to do. Brett Lawson asks, or states... Uh, with Turbo Atoll on the way, I'm sure the Zoner Capsules are the race cars. So my question is, will we see some stickers to customize the Zoner Capsules? Um, 
As I stated on Patreon, I'm stealing this idea. I'm experimenting with it. There are size requirements for my printer um, that might make these stickers a little bigger than I would like, but I, I'm I'm gonna attempt it, and I think that's a fantastic idea, and, and thank you for that. So look for that to make an appearance sometime soon. Matt Bennett asks Daphne or Velma. Matt, as a, as a man who's traveled this world and known the relations of many a Daphne and many a Velma, I can tell you, always pick Velma, no question. Gabe Tovar, coming in with a big old paragraph. Okay, well here is the double barrel loaded question. I just wanna say I absolutely adore how well the Bugman sets have been. I've been having a blast with them, especially with the latest Patreon gift. Will we be seeing any more Bugman styles, kind of how we had Grasshopper with the classic night look in any future releases? Will Grasshopper be making a return in some shape or form? Will he be the same? Um, I just wonder how Grasshopper Knight is doing in whatever form he may be in out there. Second question that comes to mind when I messed around with the Steel Dojo Bugman, their blackened eyes give such a sinister look so far. I'm just just been getting some bad guy vibes from the way they have him armed. Are there any evil bugmen out there? If so, would they be loyal to... Are they loyal to anyone, or would they walk on their own rebellious path doing terrible crimes such as jaywalking and loitering? <laughs> That's very good. Um, so, let me think how to answer this. There will be more bugmen. I love doing the bugmen. It's... Some of my favorite characters are Bugmen, right? Um, there will be more. So far, all the Bugmen we have met in stories have been of the same ilk. They're all sort of hopelessly dedicated to Saima. They respect her as their creator. They, you know, they love to serve her and they live to serve her. That doesn't preclude any other varieties coming into existence at some point so uh, I don't want to say too much with things I haven't written yet because that you know those statements may not age well but so far every bugman that we've met in the stories have been you know pretty dedicated um, Steel Dojo is an interesting faction and we're gonna have more Steel Dojo I'm gonna talk about this with a, a question a little later on um, but I have not, you know, I have not shared the alignment of the Steel Dojo clan just yet. Building off of that question from Gabriel, Matthew Paquette chimes in. Um, he agrees the Steel figures and black eye tampos make them look like evil robot versions of the characters. Do I have a backstory for all the Steel figures? Any chance Steel Dojo or others making an appearance in future short stories? With regard to Patreon gifts, starting in December 2019, we've received Steel Desert Rat, Steel Saima, Q, Steel Dojo Bugman. I'm wondering if there's yet to be revealed reason we've received three Steel versions of these figures. Q is also an evil robotic digital version of Saima. Will this Steel trend continue with the next Patreon gift? Will we be getting another Q? Are we gradually building an army of villains without realizing it. I'm sitting here with them all in front of me pondering Frankenslice comment, uh, combos. Can you comment? So I will refer back to what I said. Um, I have not revealed any alignment with Steel Dojo. Uh, I would also say that you're probably giving me too much credit regarding Patreon gifts. I, I, I am... It is somewhat random, right, when I choose... Uh, to release these. Steel figures are fantastic and usually part of my first orders because they apply, they work with everything, right? It's like a black suit, it matches everything. So I, I am never hesitant to order a steel version of a character because I know even if I have to scrap them just for parts and not make them a, a, a release, it'll work with everything. So that's why there's historically been a lot of steel figures. I I have to confess I have not been sort of strategic in Patreon gifts. I usually decide those a few days before I share them with you, and it's based on what is um, sort of available. I, I The next Patreon gift is not going to be Steel Dojo. 
Um, but I like this idea of Steel Jojo. I think it's something that needs to be explored soon. Matthew Monthly. How do you go about deciding when to use gloss versus matte on a figure? Is it cost or is it design? Uh, fantastic question. I'm glad you've noticed this. Uh, it is design, right? It is all based on design. Now, if you look at the first several years, not several, but the first three to four years of Knights of the Slice figures, they are almost all universally coated, uh, glossy, if you will. Now, that was not necessarily intentional, uh, just the majority of all Glyos figures are coated. So I was sort of relearning how to design toys because there's been such a huge gap between, you know, working at Jazzwares and then working on my own stuff that uh, I just kind of fell into the rut of just labeling everything PMS, the color number, and then C, PMS standing for the Pantone system, Pantone matching system. Um, and uh, because all of the Matt Dowdy mechanicals I would look at or utilize had C at the end of all of them, they were just all coded. And I never really thought very much about that. Then when I started to do human characters, like the heads on the Rift Killers and flesh tones and things like that, I started to realize a coded skin tone doesn't quite look right. It's too shiny. It doesn't photograph well. It has the opposite effect of what I'm kind of trying to do. And instead of looking like a character, it looks just like a toy. It wasn't until the Desert Rat that inadvertently I had left off the C at the end of the color callout. And so I got uncoated figure samples. And they looked great. It was much better, especially for somebody like Desert Rat, who's a bit more real type than a fantastical sort of sci-fi character or superhero character. Uh, it worked so well, and I loved the skin tone much better. So from there on out, I tried as best I could to always utilize uncoated, non-glossy skin tones. And I think it's, it's really worked to the benefit of the characters. Uh, I'm getting better and better at sort of distinguishing which parts should be glossy and which parts should not be. And um, I sort of wish I had been cognizant of this from the beginning, but, uh, you know, you learn something new every day, I suppose. Quentin Russo, Spotify recommended Yellow Magic Orchestra Q. Any relation? I asked because you were listening to them before the release. You cracked the code, my friend. Q is named after that very song by Yellow Magic Orchestra. I just thought it was, it's such a fantastic song. Fantastic band. Uh, I have fueled a lot of the crazy workshop fulfillment and envelope stuffing to uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra. Of course, turned on to them by Dowdy, who utilizes them for the same sort of uh, abilities. And yes, the, the song cue is where I got the name for the Saima Q figures. Adam E. Kenyon asked a silly, silly question. Swamp Thing or Man Thing? Nobody is going to pick Man Thing in their right mind. Swamp Thing all the way. That is a, a silly, silly question. You should feel like a silly man, and I hope you're wearing a bow tie. Quentin Russo also asks... Testudo 2.0 coming soon. Scarabite colorway, perhaps. What about movie Ninja Turtle colorway? I'll take something bright or muddy or both. Um, Quentin, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but Testudo sold very poorly. I don't know why. It was one of those figures I, I felt like was a one for the fans, an homage I thought people would connect with. It did not sell well. It hung around for a very long time. It ended up getting scrapped for parts. Uh, so I don't think I'll do any more Testudos, although I encourage people to uh, build their own. And now on to Facebook questions, starting with Philip Ferrara. What was the hardest challenge after graduating college? 
for me, it was trying to find a balance between applying my degree as well as finding profitable work. Uh, I can certainly relate to that. Um, look, I think college is a fucking scam. Um, I think I should have dropped out probably after my first or second year. I did definitely gain useful skills in college, but I don't think I learned anything that I couldn't have learned elsewhere. Certainly not in today's era of things like Skillshare, you know, where you can learn Photoshop and, and um, Illustrator and things like that. I just, I don't see, especially in the face of the veil of illusion dropping off of this economy, what the value is. Um, I think there are huge systemic problems with private education. There are huge systemic problems with even the public education we offer. And as we can see right now, with the world in the shape it's in, um, the promise of a college degree equaling a steady job that you'll have for 30 or 40 years and then eventually retire from, uh, it's all bullshit. It's, we've been conned. We've all been collectively conned. Not to mention, if you really want to make your stomach sick, you should look at the billions in dollar, of dollars in profit that the federal government makes off of student loans. It's pretty sickening, and you wonder why they are not eager to sort of discharge that debt. It is a huge profit pool for them. So um, I guess the, the largest challenge post-college is figuring out that the bill of goods you've been sold is not accurate at all. That uh, a college degree is meaning less and less, and especially will mean less on the other side of this pandemic. Um, and the huge, you know, starting your career in debt is a largely detrimental um, position that you may never get out of. I myself still carry, I think, just under $30,000 of student loan debt that I have paid diligently for at least the past 10 years. And uh, I don't know when I'll be done paying that. I, it's going to be quite some time, I think. So, um, what can I tell you? Maybe, uh, I have no advice. <laughs> I have no advice in the matter other than to tell people if you're in college currently, uh, which are likely going to be virtual classes for the immediate future, you may want to reassess and fall back to state schools or cheaper tuition, uh, given that, you know, a lot of on-campus experience is going to be truncated uh, probably for the rest of this year and, and possibly further. Snake Pike, with the creation of Chameleon Lime, will other hypermicros be able to have similar comebacks? When Hacker Man arrives in the store, will there be a supply crate tailored to him, similar to how Radic had his supply crate? Um, I, I don't think that the appearance of Chameleon Lime necessarily signifies resurrection of other characters. I, I sort of, I do that, you know, very judiciously and very lightly. I don't like characters that make a comeback. And I would say that any character that has reappeared after a sort of corporal death um, is often changed and different than the form they were in before. I do think that sort of metamorphosis um, is different than resurrection. And so any character that has had different iterations of them is more of a metamorphosis as opposed to a sort of death and resurrection like you would find in a, you know, soap opera. Uh, no plans for a supply crate for Hacker Man at this point. It's not a bad idea, actually. Uh, just because he comes with so much gear. He really does. You're going to see... Uh, I have now, since recording the first portion of this Desazapod, I have now announced Hackerman sale for Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. You will see it comes with a ton of stuff. I don't know what more I could stack him with, um, but interesting challenge to think about. Trevor Peckis got a couple questions here. Are the dots on Chameleon Lime's eyes from a Sharpie? They are. It's true. Uh, mustard or Dijon? Um, I'm going to uh, zig instead of zag, and I'm going to tell you fermented mustard very, very good and extremely healthy for you. So pick some of that up. 
Am I the king shit of fuck mountain? Uh, I do not get that reference, but I'm assuming, sure, that applies to me. Number four, new female villain, Ghislaine Maxwell type figure someday. Scary. That would be too scary uh, to ever create an action figure form. And uh, if you really want to find a villain, it's not even Ghislaine. Look at her father and the pedigree of that guy. My God. Um, I could go down the rabbit hole on on this, but I won't. Uh, Other than to tell you guys that there are very real villains in the world and um they already exist they're out there they're scarier than fiction number five translucent glow gold glitter classic knight like the mega knight colorway um i've never thought about that before glitter is really tricky it takes a long time to get right and it's particularly expensive so it's a possibility but it's not on my short list if that makes sense Will there be more relic crates? Uh, I actually ran out of boxes, so I don't have an answer for you at the moment. Not in the immediate future. Number seven, my robot wanted to ask you, what is love? Am I love? Uh, Love is baby don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more. Charles Hazelwood asks, can we please have some opaque versions of the pods? Uh, Yes, there'll be one or two. Snake Pike, a little late, but I also wanted to ask who your favorite character in Evangelion was, and if you plan on watching the rebuild. Uh, So at this point, I have seen all of the the breadth of the different iterations of the Evangelion stories and series and films. Um, I'm waiting for part four, I believe, which was supposed to be released in Japan this summer, and I believe is delayed due to the uh, corona epidemic. Um, favorite character, you know, you could make the argument there are, there are no likable characters in Evangelion, and they're all sort of evil in their own way. Um, I guess I'm an Asuka fan, because at least she has confidence, which is uh, hard to come by in that universe. Jonathan Emmett has a couple questions here. Desert Rat feels a little tough to swap parts with other figures due to his seemingly short limbs. Uh, Specifically, his hands look too short on most other figures. Was Desert Rat designed to really just work with other rats, or was it a sacrifice to get the rat to look how you wanted him to? So I have to do this calculation every time I do a character, right? And I have to make choices based on... uh, How did I put it previously? I believe universality... And utility. So universal versus utility. Uh, My figures can sort of do one or the other. Universal figures work with everything. Um, You know, I guess like the classic knight is a great example of that. Utility figures are more of a closed system. And they're that way because I'm trying to achieve something specific to that character. So Radic, in some regards is a bit more of a utility character. Hackerman is certainly a utility character. Um, And Desert Rat is a utility character. For me, I I didn't want unseemly sort of cut joints in the middle of the forearm just for the sake of making it work with other Knights of the Slice. I wanted to recreate exactly the gloves I had in mind, which are a historical artifact. And um, that was more important to me than having a universality. Um, both these sort of these topics are important to making a good toy, but I don't think that one, you know, is more important than the other. There are plenty of Glios toy lines that have universality. I would argue that the majority of the other Glios toy lines have universality. Um, I would also argue I have more memorable characters. And I think that you can sort of debate that in your mind, but at the end of the day, that's what I'm trying to achieve. I want something that looks unique. I want it to be evocative. I want it to have instant characterization. I'm less concerned with it being able to be applied to, you know, a hundred other figure builds. That being said, the Deseret gloves work exceptionally well with the Shikan arms. Um, And... I have noticed a dozen or so times these unexpected compatibilities kind of bubble up 
which is always really fascinating and a lot of fun to do. A good contemporary example of this is how the limbs on Hackerman work pretty well when you double them up. If you've seen this sort of uh, breakdown I've done of the different build types that you can achieve with two Hackerman of the same kind, um, this is a good example of that. Jonathan Emmett has a, another great philosophical question here. What do you consider an action figure? Question mark. For, existence, for uh, instance, there are dollar store toys that look like action figures but lack any articulation. Are they still action figures? I understand that there's some kind of financial reason for toy manufacturing labeling certain toys action figures. Uh, but does it still have, does this still have an effect on the toy industry in your experience? Um, I, I don't actually think that the, the term action figure, I don't believe there's financial implications. Um, import wise, as far as like classification codes, HTS codes, uh, I, action figure is a subcode and I don't even think it really matters in that regard. Uh, what the priority of the codes would be is sort of the material it's made out of, so plastic, and then the category, the HTS category, which is toys. Um, you can then sort of further differentiate in parentheses that it's an action figure, but I've never encountered any situation where it actually mattered if I classified something as a toy or as an action figure. Uh, I do know that I have some really great listeners who work in import and work in shipping and probably can tell you or correct me if I'm way off base there, uh, but that's my understanding. As far as my personal philosophy goes, I think an action figure is anything that is figural, anything that is sculpted, that you can have action with, right? So I've, I've had some really great applause um, Marvel superhero figures in the late 80s, early 90s. And these were, this was pre-Toy Biz, so these were the only figural representations of contemporary superheroes that I could get a hold of. And I loved those things, and I made them fight, and I stacked them up and knocked them over, and, you know, they, they were the world to me prior to that first Toy Biz X-Men line. Um, so... I mean, you could argue that's not an action figure, there's no articulation, but I could argue back that I was able to, you know, enact action with this little tiny statue. So I think it's it's truly in the eyes of the beholder. Um, as far as, like, how the industry approaches it, I think it's all marketing, right? They use the term action figure to convey to a buyer who is likely not interested in action figures and not knowledgeable like you or I are, to convey to them what this is and what they're getting. You know, there's a lot of McFarlane figures with no articulation. He sold them to those buyers as an action figure. I don't think he's particularly wrong for doing that. And I think it, it communicated in shorthand to that person who is not, you know, who is essentially a layman, uh, what they were purchasing. John also asks, what music album have you recently re-listened to that you feel not only holds up after years, but you get something new out of? For him, it was the work of The Future Sound of London. It still blows his mind, and he gets a new perspective on it each listen, particularly Dead Cities. Uh, I'm not familiar with that band or song, so I'm going to check that out. Thank you for the recommendation. Uh, for me, um, what is held up and I get something new out of recently has been Rage Against the Machine, Right? Because I, you know, like most people, I was largely apolitical until uh, recent current events. And I liked Raising the Machine in high school, but I never did a deep dive into the politics of the lyrics of what they were singing about. Um, and I got to tell you, everything they were talking about is, is so spot on with the world we're in today. Um, and they sort of pressing issues. They really, they had their finger on the pulse. And while I wasn't smart enough to sort of analyze the issues they were calling, you know, attention to, um, and I didn't have the vocabulary or understanding of why those things were important, uh, you go back and you listen to it, and it's still, uh, I mean, I would say it's, it's more urgent and more relevant today. 
Last question, Lance. Tomimoto asks, Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Um, boy, this is a tough one. I'm kind of over the Beatles. <laughs> I went through a Beatles phase, um, I guess post-high school. I think everybody does. And I actually think, like, the beat, I, I, like, George Harrison is the best Beatle, hands down. Anyone who likes John Lennon can go fuck themselves. Um, and Paul McCartney's just pissed away all of his musical credibility in everything he's done. Probably post-Wings. I mean, the first couple Wings albums are pretty good. Um, so the Beatles, to me, and, and where they were most effective and powerful and great was largely because of George Harrison. Um, the Rolling Stones probably have some better songs, but they've also made so much shitty music. They did not have the the fortune of having, you know, one of their key members gunned down to prevent them from making any bad albums. Um, the Rolling Stones have tons of really shitty, really terrible songs. But, you know, that's a, this is a really tough question. Fuck. I guess I'm just gonna be a contrarian, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Rolling Stones. So thanks for listening to today's Destazapod. Do me a favor, if you have a subsidy supply drop pre-order and uh, you're unsure of the status, drop me an email, Jesse at EerieTheoryEntertainment.com. And uh, if you can, include your order number. I'm going to start getting those compiled over the next week or two and hopefully start dispatching them. So if you've moved, you have a change of address, you uh, you know need some details confirmed, let's take care of that now before I get to the fulfillment stage for that. And um, I think that'll help things go smoothly. And, my friends, the only thing left to say is pizza out. Pizza out.